And now here's part two of Why Is He Not In Jail? It's, it's, it's interesting because if you did care, and, and I've, extended, I've extended the invite to Mark to join us on this show repeatedly. Yeah. If he didn't do it, then he should definitely come on and, and, and offer up some alternative theory. I even at one point asked about some of these other characters of Mark. Do you think they had any involvement in it? And he told me I wouldn't be able to solve the case. And I said, but I'm trying, Mark. Why aren't you? Yeah, and that's another direct quote from that first call with him. Um, he flat out said, I know you want to help, but you can't. And he was so concise and so definitive when he said, but you can't. Very adamant yeah. that we could not help. And, and again, this guy doesn't know anything about who we are, what we are, or what our capabilities are. So... To say that, again, is a very telling statement. Mm -hmm. And one other uh, moment from that call that pops into my mind that I cannot get out of my head now, um, he said, and he said it just like this, I haven't seen her since, since she left. And he was so, he said those last three words, since she left, with such a finality just uh, such a there was just like there was like it was just like that was it like yeah. it was set in stone yeah it, it was uh it was a very disconcerting way to say it that yeah really left you with that like oh okay i think i understand what you're saying it's and, not good. Yeah, and what I and the reason we keep talking about these different characters right now is because that really is, you know, the second portion of the reasons why uh, Mark hasn't gone to jail for any of this because it's the people in his life. It's how he knew Jimmy Farnham and um, how Jimmy Farnham was connected to um, his property and his sister owns half the property too. And now the current owners of the house were also friends of Jimmy's sister. And like everybody knows everybody in this story. Well, interesting. You brought up, uh, Glenn Alkire, yeah. who Jessica has attempted to talk to twice, who has been rude and dismissive and starts yelling at her says he couldn't remember Mark. I mean, you don't remember the guy whose daughter went missing from church? Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a big one. I feel like that's a guy you're probably never going to forget. Yeah. It seems like a lot of people no longer want to be associated with Mark Vincent, and I get that. I don't know why anybody would want to be associated with that person. It is very much, and season one listeners will forgive me for the reference, it is a conspiracy of silence. Um, it is the definition of that term because everybody knows everybody. Uh, this is a, a group of people all who knew each other and communicated with each other at the time. And all these years later, suddenly nobody remembers anybody. Nobody remembers Mark. Nobody knows anything. And again, going back to Jimmy Farnham, Jimmy said he didn't remember Mark's name, but he remembered it was $600 a month in rent. Mm -hmm. What a weird, arbitrary thing to remember you don't remember the, the guy's name? Well, 
and uh, just the, the fact that, you know, this was your family's property and this is a house that you yourself lived in. You don't remember the one guy who rented it? Like, well, also, don't forget that this case, the, the gun case, eventually made its way to Connecticut State Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. This thing dragged out over a few years. So even if you, <laughs> even if you didn't remember the guy, you probably would have remembered the story as related to your property because your property address keeps getting brought up in this court case. That, how is that something you could possibly forget? That was something that Jimmy and Laura seemed to also disagree on too, uh, that Jimmy could not remember police ever coming to his door or asking if they could search the property or anything like that. Um, I can't fully remember what Laura said Uh she described the police being all over the property. Yeah. And that, you know, they had, she, she believed that it was the police who actually wanted to pump out the septic. Very different stories from those two. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why Laura West would make up stuff or lie. And to give listeners just an idea too, Laura West seemed very genuine on the phone. She, she would really stop after each question and like she like she was trying to recall, you know, like she had nothing to hide. You know what else, Sarah? She never said she'd be more guarded when it, told she was being recorded. No, not at all. She, uh, she was, if anything, she was more helpful. Yes. So, um, so I, I want to get to the third topic of this, um, threefold answer question. Um, the third of these three categories in answering today's question is probably the most obvious one of them all, and that is the Wallingford PD. Um, right out of the gate, it was bad. Of all the research we've done, Jessica has spent endless hours researching, digging up old documents, search warrants, everything you can think of. There is absolutely nothing to indicate that there was ever an initial search done of 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road on the day that Doreen was reported missing. If police had gone to the house that day, they would have seen the broken window. They would have seen that the comforter was missing. They would have seen all of Doreen's clothes and possessions, including her denim jacket, her purse, her shoes. And there's also nothing to indicate that police took official statements from Donna or Debbie or Carol. Despite their insistence that this was a fine and thorough investigation, all of the investigating we've done into that has just not bared out. There, there doesn't, they don't seem to have come to that property. It, they may have come a couple of days afterwards. They certainly didn't do a search of the home. Again, as you mentioned, that window was apparently still broken a year later, when they did search 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road and, mm-hmm. and did a, a much fuller search at that point. And, and again, as you mentioned, that would have been super important the day after he reported yeah. her missing. And it's in, and again, Mark Vincent went in, into the police station and explained to the police that this was a chronic runaway. And Jessica mentioned the first meeting that you guys had with the police, that the yep. first thing out of the main lieutenant's mouth was chronic runaway mm-hmm. in regards to Doreen Vincent. Yep. How can you solve a case 
when all of the information you're working with came from the prime suspect and his wife, who was clearly covering for him. Mm-hmm. All of the news articles written based off that as well, you were never going to solve this case because, you know, to this day, the Wallingford police still don't have all the facts. They still don't know all the characters. They've still never spoken to Teresa Lyon. Yeah. There's so much that hasn't been done that can't be explained, and you have to start asking the question, why? I want to get back to the very beginning because early on, back in October, when I first picked this case and I started doing my preliminary research, obviously the first place I decided to call was the Wallingford Police Records Department. And I spoke to a woman in the records department. Um, She asked me what I needed, asked me for any information I could give, like Doreen's birth date, the date she went missing, any detail. Um, She said that she would look for anything if they could share it publicly with me and that someone would get back to me. So after I hung up, I kind of felt like that would be the last time they called me, but somebody surprisingly did call me back that very same day. And this time it was a man, and he gave me the number for Lieutenant Michael Colavolpe and said that if I had any information, uh, said that if any information regarding Doreen's case was to be given out, he would be the one to give it. And this man also told me that Colavolpe was away until December, so I had to wait until then. So jump ahead to December. I called Lieutenant Colavolpe. I explained what the project was, how I wanted to do a series that investigated Doreen's disappearance. Lieutenant Colavolpe, to my surprise, then told me that he wouldn't be the one to talk to because he was not the one in charge of the case. He said that he just wanted to check with the state's attorney to make sure that it was okay that they shared anything with me. And he said that if that worked out, he would refer me to the officer who was in charge of Doreen's case, Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo, the head of the traffic division. Um, and that was also the last time that I heard from Cola Volpe. Um, but then in January, Jessica also called the Wallingford PD for the same reasons, to get any public records regarding Doreen. And, you know, for those keeping count right now, <laughs> that's two people who called the Wallingford police a total of three times between October and January of this year. So on January 23rd, we received a press release from the Wallingford police, and it was written by Lieutenant DeMeo, which I've never shared on here before, but I am going to read that now. Okay, so this is dated January 23rd, 2019, Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo, Traffic Division. The title says, Doreen Vincent, Missing Since 1988, for immediate release. In recent weeks, there have been several inquiries made to the Wallingford Police Department concerning the investigation of missing person Doreen Vincent, whose whereabouts are still unknown more than 30 years after her disappearance. Doreen was reported missing on June 18, 1988, under a suspicious set of circumstances, and three days after she was last seen by her father, Mark Vincent, at his Whirlwind Hill Road home in Wallingford. Although this would be classified uh, as a cold case, it is most certainly an open case that is often on the minds of Wallingford police investigators. With that said, we would be remiss to relate specific and closely kept information to the public. 
What we can say is that we are always accepting information concerning this investigation and upon receipt will scrutinize, examine, and follow all leads until exhausted. At the time of her disappearance, Doreen was a 12-year-old child from a divorced set of parents that had a visitation arrangement. Her father, Mark Vincent, had recently moved to Wallingford from Bridgeport with his wife, Sharon, and their two very young children. This was known to Doreen's mother, Donna Jones, at the time. And because occupancy of the Wallingford residence was recently established, as was the new telephone service, Donna initially did not have their phone number. This led to a lack of communication between Donna and Mark, a delay in reporting Doreen missing, and added to the suspicions surrounding this mystery. In the weeks and months that followed, investigators established a timeline of Doreen's last known activities and contacts, interviewed many of Doreen's family members and friends, executed search warrants on Mark's vehicle, his mother's residence, as well as several other locations and recovered items that Mark initially told investigators that his daughter took with her when she ran away, which is in quotes. These findings only added to the belief that Doreen's disappearance was suspicious in nature. The dogged investigation has led investigators to many different cities and towns throughout Connecticut, as well as other states. Doreen's maternal grandparents even hired a private investigator to look into their granddaughter's disappearance, to no avail. In 2011, the Wallingford Police Department revisited the case to ensure that no known information was overlooked and no leads went unfollowed. It was discovered that the case file contained Doreen's dental records, and due to advances in technology since 1988, these dental records were sent out to a forensic on I can't read that word, um, so that her teeth could be coded for entry into the NCIC and NamUs databases. They also enhanced the radiographs and prepared digital images so that information concerning Doreen's dental records could now easily be shared with other agencies should the need arise. The Wallingford Police Department will not close this investigation until it is solved and either Doreen herself or her remains are reunited with the family. I just find it interesting that this case is always on their minds, yet the last time they looked at the case was 2011, which would have been eight years ago, mm -hmm. and it was simply to uh, put her dental records in the missing national person's database. Again, sort of treating this as if it's a runaway, and it's not, and they know it's not, so why do they treat it like that? They're always sort of one foot in, one foot out. You, you sort of admit it's suspicious in nature, but why, why haven't you brought Mark Vincent in for another round of questioning? Well, and, and I'm just going to ask this. Why is the head of the traffic division the head of the, the person heading Doreen's case now? Uh, that's a good question mm -hmm. to ask. And... We've both had mm -hmm. meetings with Lieutenant DeMeo, who seems like an awfully f fine fella. Mm -hmm. He's very protective of the department that he works for. I get that. Protecting the blue. I, I understand that that's, that's how police work works. And I appreciate Lieutenant DeMeo in every conversation we have immediately points out what a great and thorough job the Wallingford PD did. Now, I have spoken to some high-ranking law enforcement officials in Connecticut who told me that even today in 2019 and very much in 1988, that Wallingford did not have the capabilities 
or the resources to solve a case like this. So I know they tried really hard. They got bad info from the get-go, mm -hmm. lost track of the prime suspect, which they've been a little they've been a little iffy on that. That that as far as maybe they did know where Mark was and they just didn't want him to know that they knew where he was, which is insanely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You made the suspect think he was safe by not trailing him or following him. That would have given off the opposite effect. So that really doesn't make any sense. The other excuse given was that it was journalistic error, but it's literally in the police warrants yeah, they that they didn't that. know where Mark was. They wrote that information. It is written in black and white in that search and seizure warrant. But then we have Detective Thomas Hanley, who is now the chief of police up in Middlebury, Vermont. I've spoken his name several times throughout this season. He's the one who interviewed Mark Vincent in that portion of the interview that we were able to read because it was evidence in Mark's gun trial. He's quoted multiple times in the 2001 article from the Record Journal, even going so far as to say that when this man who was spotted in the woods that fall, whose truck matched Mark's truck, was seen entering the woods, he was carrying something with his two arms stretched out, like he was carrying a kid or a carpet. And when I emailed Hanley asking him to speak on the record, all he was willing to say publicly was, quote, I decline the invitation for interviews. The case is under the purview of the Wallingford, Connecticut Police Department, for which I am no longer employed. It is entirely inappropriate for me to make any public comment on a case under the jurisdiction of another agency or an open investigation. I have not been a party to this case for 28 years and have not seen any notes or reports since then. This is an open investigation for which the unauthorized release of information is inappropriate or even unlawful, and any misstatements can undermine the investigation. Please direct any requests for commentary on this case to Chief William Wright of the Wallingford Police Department. And I've always taken issue with that because the thing is, Hanley left the Wallingford Police Department in 1991. So at the time of the 2001 article where he's giving all of these quotes, talking about having Doreen's picture on his desk, remembering the case number, talking about how the guy spotted in the woods looking like he was carrying a kid, he was already 10 years removed from the Wallingford PD then. So why is he sharing all of that with the Record Journal in 2001, but in 2019, it's entirely inappropriate for him to share anything on this podcast. You know, they've referred to this themselves, the Wallingford PD, as, you know, things could undermine the investigation. And there's really not much of an investigation happening right now mm -hmm. by the Wallingford Police Department. So I don't know what sharing any information would do to hurt the case, because it's gone unsolved for 31 years. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's what are you waiting for? Well, and they, we've said it several times. So what is it they're waiting for? Chief William Wright, by the way, is a is a really fantastic guy, uh, and and he did take a meeting with us, and and he was he was pretty helpful, and we we did bring up Hanley, 
And he said the same thing. You know, Hanley shouldn't speak on the case. He's under this other jurisdiction, blah, blah, blah. But interestingly enough, the Meriden police were involved in this case. Working with Hanley. Right. So you have another jurisdiction commenting and actively working on a case in another jurisdiction. I actually have a letter that Hanley wrote that I don't have on me right now uh, that he wrote to the Bethel police with the information that they knew about the gun being at at, um, Mark's mother's home and told the Bethel police, you want to go and arrest him? That'd be really great. And of course they did. So once again, you have the Wallingford police sharing information with another jurisdiction and actually literally asking them to be agents of the Wallingford police by arresting Mark on the gun charge. So I want to know why, if they were so willing to talk to each other back then and to talk publicly back then, like what I just mentioned with the 2001 article, what... What is the thing now that that is preventing that from happening? Why is there, again, this silence among everybody that it's just, it, it was so active 30 years ago. I mean, it's not going to, you know, nothing new is going to really come up. Nothing. I mean, whatever happened, happened. So what's what's the thing they can't talk about all of a sudden? Well, there was something that happened in 2003. Yes. And I almost, Sarah... And I hate to be all vague right now, but I almost wonder if that interview wasn't in anticipation of what happened in 2003. They felt a little more free to talk about things, perhaps thinking this case was going to come to a close. And then when it didn't, maybe a directive was given that everybody should just shut their mouth. Mm hmm. And we haven't shared on this podcast what that thing was that almost happened in 2003. Um, I don't know if we should share that at any point. Maybe we should. Probably before Uh, this whole show is, before this podcast is done this season, I think it would be worth talking about. But I think, I think for now, we'll just leave that alone. But know that there's something substantial and, and there's a reason that we can't quite tell you about it right now, but it is coming and it's. Uh, Just one more mind numbing thing about this case where you're going to, you're going to really be asking this question forehead and ask, why is he not in jail? And, and I'm going to say this doing two seasons of this podcast, I have come to the conclusion that the biggest reason why these cases turn into these 30, 40 year old killed cases is because of the police work or the lack thereof. Um, I've said this before in our conversations amongst ourselves, the Wallingford Police Department would rather let a more than 30-year-old cold case go unsolved than ever admit that they made mistakes in the beginning. You know, in, in our multiple meetings with the police, again, and, and my characterization is in the beginning, they treated us like the gang from Scooby-Doo, a bunch of meddling kids, you know, who don't know what they're talking about, don't know what they're doing. We have unearthed new people we've unearthed new evidence we've given all of this information and the leads to the police and i understand that it's a very busy department back in january 
Chief Wright spoke at a town council meeting and, and, and basically complained he still doesn't have the resources to adequately protect Wallingford to his likings, to his specificity. So I understand that there's probably all sorts of stuff those guys are dealing with, but we're giving you new information on a 31-year-old cold case. Go get it. Yeah, I, well, and that's part of the problem, too, is that they have all this evidence. They have a mountain of circumstantial evidence, and I've said this plenty of times before, too. I say this probably once a day, that people have been convicted on less circumstantial evidence than this. And I want to talk a little bit about um, how you were telling me that another person who works in law enforcement said to you what, what she said to you. Yeah. Uh, a couple months ago, I had a conversation with a female police officer. I'm not going to say it's another municipality here in Connecticut. And I told her the whole story and, and, and like anybody who hears this, you're just riveted by it. And she literally looked at me and said, you know, they're not going to do anything with this case. And I was like, yeah, but we gave them all the info and we told them where to look and blah, 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 and our whole theory. And she's they're They're paying you lip service. They're, they're just telling you what you want to hear. So you guys will go away. And I hate to believe that's the case, but there was a cold case investigator put on this case after we got involved and yeah. without making any headway in this case, he's now been promoted and taken off the case. Congratulations on your promotion, but we're right back where we started with the Wallingford PD. Exactly. We've given them the information. We've told them who to talk to. We've gone so far as to tell them, here's what they know. Here's what you should ask them. And it still hasn't happened. And it gets to a point where you get frustrated and you start to ask the question, Sarah, why don't they want to figure this thing out? Well, the thing is, uh, even in the meeting that Jess and I had with DeMeo and uh, all the, the meetings that you had with them, every conversation that we've had with them, they know Mark's guilty too. <laughs> they, they, they just do. Yeah. And, and I mean, and they'll, they'll tell you that straight out. Um, I don't know what the, what the thing is that they feel they cannot do at this point. I asked the question, why don't you just bring them in here and talk to them? And apparently Mark is under no obligation to go in and speak to the police. And again, it, it just, I find it striking that let's be honest. If the police wanted to, to bring somebody in, they could make it happen. Mm -hmm. They could drum up something. We've, we've all watched police shows. We've watched true crime dramas and, and whatnot. If yeah. they wanted to do it, if, if they could. If police want to talk to somebody, if police want somebody to come in for questioning, they're, they're not going to just wait for that, for that person's permission, for that person's okay. Here's the other thing, and you, you said this before, and you've said this before to me, and I couldn't agree with you anymore. We've seen people go to jail and get long sentences on less evidence than what's in this case. So how about this? Why don't you try this case? on all of this tremendous amount of circumstantial evidence. And in the event that this 63 year old man is found not guilty in the case, then maybe there's the possibility because of double jeopardy that he might be willing to share some information and at least 
Doreen's family could have peace of mind Mm -hmm. or a site as to where, you know, some sort of digging needs to happen. It would be great. I just don't understand the inaction. We talked about this last week. Sharon's dead. Roseanne Poloni's dead. Mark's mother's dead. Georgia Lewis. Georgia Lewis. There's a long list of dead people. And I'll tell you what, they're not getting any younger. Mm -hmm. You just said it a minute ago. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Don is in the hospital. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Just get on it and, and make something happen. And you know what? Let's hope for the best. So wrapping up this back and forth that we've had here, I hope we have effectively explained why this man, Mark Vincent, has not been arrested and is not in jail regarding his daughter Doreen's disappearance. It is those three factors. Exposure, the people that Mark Vincent knew, and bad police work. Like I just said, the cops think he's guilty, and they always have. And even if he didn't kill her, he knows what happened to her. I believe this is a man who wants to talk. Mark's got my number. I know Mark listens to the podcast every week. I've spoken to members of Mark's family. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to people from Teen Challenge. People are very willing to talk at this point. And, you know, much like with season one and the Johnny Gosh case, bringing up these kids' names, keeping these stories in the news is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I know Mark doesn't appreciate all the stuff that we've been reporting on. And as I said yeah. in the last episode, we can 100% authenticate every single thing that we have said on all of these episodes of this podcast, all 12 yep. episodes. Yep. We have a mountain of evidence, eyewitnesses. Nothing we're telling you isn't true. Yeah. And he knows this. And things are documented. These are like, you know, lack of permits for the patio to be built. Um, there's other like actual documents, like everything that's in the search and seizure warrant. And I have to say, getting back to the difference between Doreen's case and the Johnny Gosh case, I, I said this to you a few days ago, that I feel that I am doing Doreen Vincent a favor just by saying her name in the same sentence as Johnny Gosh. Um, because I, you could even make the argument there's more information in Doreen's case than there ever was in Johnny's. I mean, it's all, and like I said at the very beginning too, it's all there, frozen in time because it hasn't been bastardized by conspiracy theorists and other things just over the years. You have a no doubt prime suspect in Doreen Vincent's case. You don't have that in Johnny's case. Yeah. What you do have in this case, though, is some kind of weird unwillingness by the police to hold this guy accountable or at the very least, to bring him in. We've presented some new evidence to the police that they could certainly bring Mark in on to discuss with him. Don't know why it hasn't happened. I can't explain it. And it's, you know, it's, it's what makes doing this podcast very hard because even if we figure out what happened, we can't, um, in the official sense, solve the case because we are not law enforcement. We, I mean, we don't have the authority to close the case officially. 
only the Wallingford PD can do that. Um, and that's where our hands are kind of tied because, you know, it's like I've, I've talked to people about this with season one. Like, you know, we can bring you to the door. We can put you on the path. Like, we can supply you with and arm you with all this information. But it's, it's just that last, that last stretch that they have to do. I'd like to make one last appeal to anybody who knows anything about this case or knew Mark or the Vincents at that time. If you even think you kind of know something, we've talked to Doreen, some of Doreen's classmates mm-hmm. who have given us just little, little nuggets of information. You don't know how important that is. You don't have to necessarily be on the podcast if you don't want to be. That info is so important, though, towards figuring out what happened. You know, we've had people who would love to come on. We've had people who have shared information. You can use my words. You can't use my voice. Whatever the case may be, if you think you got something, let us know. Yeah, and and any memory is more important than you think it is. Um, it could be something that you just saw in passing one day or you just heard her mention uh, just just off the cuff or something. Um, it, I find that a lot of times with stuff like this, um, people don't know that they know something. Um, a lot of times the little details are found in just the little things that are said in passing or just kind of witnessed on a whim one day. Sure, one of Doreen's classmates said something she didn't think it was overly important we were able to tie it into something someone else told us same thing with frank iml in the blue car Teresa's talking about oh mark went out and got this new blue car it, it ties the story together so mm-hmm. again maybe you don't know exactly what happened on the day it all went down maybe you were in church with uh sharon uh, sharon vincent june 15th of 1988 that would be you know lo- love love to know anybody who might have been there that night Anybody with any any bit of information, greatly welcomed. And and again, if you're somebody in Mark's orbit, you want to have a chat, you want to ask some questions about Mark, love to talk, love to talk to you about what I know about Mark Vincent. Mm-hmm. And again, Mark, I know you're listening. Hit me up, man. Let's let's do it again. Let's have another let's have another chat, bud. So as we wrap up today, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash faded out podcast. There's also a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. We're also on Instagram as Faded Out Podcast. And please feel free to become a patron on patreon.com slash faded out podcast. Thank you, Joe, for staying in here with me today and talking about this. Um, and thank you all for joining us for this special episode. Why is he not in jail? I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time. Faded Out is written, hosted, and edited by me. Background research by Jessica Fritz Aguirre. Produced by Joe Aguirre, Jason Panette, and Maxwell McGee of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com for more on Faded Out, as well as other great original podcasts. 
Subscribe to Faded Out on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts.